0: OutdoorEdge.com
1: The Houndsman XP podcast is fueled by Joy Dog Food. Joy Dog Food has a rich tradition of supporting the Houndsman of America. Founded in 1945, Joy is proud of its history and the relationship it has built with the American Houndsman. And in 76 years, there's never been a recall. Made with 100% American-made high-quality ingredients, Joy Dog Food has one of the highest calorie-dense formulas on the market. For 76 years, this made-in-America product has kept hunting dogs in the field day after day, season after season. And when we say Made in America, Joy has a long track record of fighting for American freedoms by being on the front lines against the animal rights movement and their extremist tactics. Joy will fuel your hounds and fight for your freedoms. Fueled by Joy. This is the Houndsman XP Podcast. The original podcast for the complete houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Get
0: up there. Yeah! Yeah! Yeah!
1: Boy. boy, Ranger. Uniting houndsmen across the globe, from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many many days a week do you spend on that?
2: As much as I can, to be honest with you. Anytime that I get, I'm I'm out there.
1: Join us for every heart-pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll
0: tell you like I tell everyone else. I'm going to hunt whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here.
1: All right, so we are doing an Ask Me Anything Friday show, and I've got the long lost shorty Gorham in the house to help us work through some of these questions, man, you need, you need a freaking haircut. You look like a California hippie.
0: I, I kind of feel like one. Yeah. <laughs> Good to be back on though, man. <laughs>
1: well, that's not a mullet. What is that? What what kind of haircut it,
0: is that? It, I, I don't know. It's just long everywhere. It's, it's just ridiculous. Like,
1: it's I've been living in the mountains chasing lions for the last three months hairstyle.
0: Exactly. That's exactly what it is.
1: Total wild man.
0: (laughs) Fit in here, though. They don't look at you funny when you look (laughs) like this. (laughs) If you show up like a clean cut, all American kid, they're like, where the hell is this guy from? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Do you you wear T-shirts like say, you know, advertised for uh, CBD companies and stuff (laughs) like that when you're walking around
0: town? No, but you can't believe how many of those shops there are around here.
1: Oh, man. I can only imagine it's when we went to uh, Michigan, there were dispensaries and different things up there. I actually went to one. I went to one just to see what was going on. Um, and it was weird. That's a whole different show, but I, I just walked in. They, they card you when you come in, they hold you in this waiting room. Um, and then, and then, as you walk in, they they only let so many people in the showroom, the actual showroom, at one time. And you're sitting there at a glass, and you're watching all this stuff. And then you walk into the the showroom. And um, I went with some friends. I'll just put that out there right now. Walk into the showroom. They allow you in this this little tweaker follows you around with this this iPad and takes your order for what you want. And and all the buds sitting up there where you can look through it at the, the crystal, you know, through this crystal ball looking thing and it magnifies it. They've got all these weird things like super dank weed and and Bigfoot's Revenge and all these crazy labels and stuff <laughs> on this stuff. And and this kid's walking with me. He's like, are you going to order anything? I was like, dude, I spent 30 years in law enforcement. I just wanted to see this stuff on the legal side, you know? And uh, so when he takes your order, then it comes through this, this pipe or this drawer, you know, like a vacuum, like at the bank drive-through. And it's got, I was watching him take this stuff out of this bank teller tube and then he would ring it up and then you would would walk out with it. So it's crazy. I was just like...
0: Weird. I know a lot of people making money in that business right now, but I don't know much about it.
1: Yeah. I'm wondering why I'm yeah. doing
0: podcasts.
1: I should have opened up a, right. up a weed store in Michigan.
0: <laughs> there you go. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. So this one dude came in, he came in, he was wearing this ball cap sunglasses and he had a neck gaiter pulled up on his, over his nose, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, I, I'm behind to protect the glass here. So right. even if he is trying to rob the place, but no, he just checked in and went in and did his thing and then left. And I told told my friends, I said, "That's probably somebody's high school principal or the preacher,
0: yeah, or or a cop." Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, and somebody that didn't want to get see, seen. I didn't even think of that, shorty. Yeah. <laughs>
1: now that you mention uh-huh. it, now that you mention it, that's a good possibility. <laughs> but anyway, hey, we're here to to answer the the wild and crazy questions, the good questions we got this month. And, uh, Shorty, I wanted to have you on because, for one, we haven't heard from you for a while, and um, uh, we wanted your expertise on some of these these questions. But uh, before we get into it, what have you been up to? Tell everybody what you've been up to.
0: Well, so right currently, um, I'm out here pretty much um, northeast of L.A., uh, working, a, working a project with um, Unif- University of California Davis, um uh lion capture collar project um there's a couple couple reasons they're doing the project and they're and doing it in this area there's um people might be aware that there's a couple locations in california where the lions have been um isolated it's isolated populations much like you saw in the florida panthers you know, 40 years ago, and they are actually starting to see the same uh, defects in the in the lions in those isolated populations as they saw in Florida. And so, um, people might be aware they've they've built or are building a wildlife bridge to try to remedy one of those uh, areas. They're looking for areas to build some more. But there's also um, there's also a high speed train going in, or a couple links of high speed train going in out here in California. So they're looking for areas that wildlife crosses, and being we need to to get genetics from this area to see how the genetics flow from the Sierra Nevada mountain range into the coastal mountain range. Um, they're using the the lion as a as an animal, kind of the flag flagship animal to to decide where these wildlife are crossing, so that they can they can build those bridges or underpasses into the high speed train hmm. uh, instead of trying to do it later.
1: That's interesting. That's a whole show right there, man. Talk about that project.
0: Yeah, it's it's a neat deal. There's a lot going on out here in California right now. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to a, a statewide meeting with all the biologists from the state. And uh, and get to listen in on on all the stuff that they're doing. So it's pretty cool work that they're doing out here right now. And there yeah. is reason for it. I mean, it's a it's a legitimate uh, reason to do it if we wanna if we wanna save the lions. I know the deer hunters listening to this podcast are are uh, cringing right now, but the uh, but the true blue houndsmen and lion hunters are are probably smiling. So
1: yeah. So you referred to the Florida problem. Uh, you worked on that project as well on the Florida Panther. And what were some of the problems you saw when you isolated those, you didn't have that genetic diversity. What were some of the problems you saw?
0: So, uh, some, I didn't see any because they had already, um, fixed that problem down there. Um, they, what are some of the problems that are common? But, um, uh, very common. One of the very first things you'll see is crooked tails. Mm Um, after that they saw um no testicle descent maybe being born with one testicle or no testicles very low semen count um the females were not coming into heat um or or just not fertile period um Mm -hmm. they saw there toward the end almost all of the all of the panthers had ridgebacks like a rhodesian ridgeback Um, no kidding yeah yeah it was it was a lot of a lot of stuff going on, and, and they're already out here in those isolated populations. They're already seeing the crooked tail, so they know they're getting really close. Yeah. So something has to be done.
1: All right. So California hasn't had Mount Lion hunting since when? 2005. Is that right?
0: uh you know to be honest with you i can't answer that question but it was earlier than that it was it w- was it 95 was it it, it might have been i guarantee 95 you, or, i
1: guarantee you the california houndsmen are gonna let me know as soon as this one comes out
0: oh yeah for sure uh, well and i and i would like to know because i don't i don't know for sure so
1: so do you think that um any of these studies will play into possibly reestablishing uh, a hunting season out there could some of these problems be coming because the isolated populations are overpopulated and they need to be managed or is it strictly they can't move out because of uh, infrastructure that we've built and now yeah. we've got the genetic problems
0: it's it's a hundred percent infrastructure mm-hmm. yeah they're, they're uh some of the slides that they showed at the at the meeting there was you know 18 lanes of highway or freeway um, yeah. that they just, you know, they can't cross. So it's, it's an infrastructure problem as far as get, being able to hunt them. I have no idea. You know, that's, um, mm. that's way above my pay grade. And, right. And, uh, I don't even want to get in there cause all this hair I got, I'll probably lose. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> so, so just describe what that traffic flow looks like on an 18 lane freeway. It's 24 seven, isn't it?
0: Yeah. It's 24 seven and it's pretty solid it's, it's, it's just crazy. It's almost unimaginable when you see it, you're just like, wow. It's, and so, you know, a lot of the, the animals will try to cross. Um, I shouldn't say a lot will try to cross, but the ones that do try to cross typically get hit. Yeah. Um, so yeah. there's, you know, just they all they're trying to do is build an avenue for them to be able to get in and out of that what's now isolated and it will become unisolated and then your genetics can flow in and out. And it should cure the problem. And it's it's same thing is going to happen to the deer, or is happening to the deer. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, the the lion is just seems to be the flagship animal.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, we're so. going to have to do another show on on that for sure. Hey, let's jump into uh, let's jump into our questions. And uh, I've got some guests that are going to come in, and some of them will be voices that people are familiar with. But uh, we had a lot of fun questions this month too. And uh, we might touch on them a little bit, but um, yeah, the way we'll the way we'll take care of that is um, uh, I'll just introduce the next guest, and then we'll give them the you know that time slot to come in and and contribute to this conversation. But let's talk about some serious stuff first. Um, and this is one that I thought you could really weigh in on, Shorty, and help us with. Uh, Josh Williams submitted a question. It says, um, say you get an older puppy or young dog and the dog has not had the time to put in on uh, the time was never put in on basic obedience or been socialized much. Where would you start?
0: Uh, Yeah, I thought that was a great question Um, for me. um, And it depends on how, you know, if the dog's just running wild, um, if they don't know what a tone is or vibrate or uh, stimulation, what I always do with my dogs, and I would do it at a dog of any age, um, and like I said, I'd, I'm not sure exactly how wild this animal is or whatever, but mm-hmm. I always put them on like a like a 30-foot check line, uh, I guess that's what you would call it, and I start off close, just get the dog to where they're following you, and then... And then what I'll do is I'll walk that dog in a direction that it already wants to go preferably usually like back toward the kennels and and I'll tone that dog and when I tone that dog a lot of time and I'm talking eight feet out um and I've got a hold of that line so that that dog can't get away from me and 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 then and then when that dog comes back to me, I reward the dog, just pet him up, you know whatever if you if you do the food thing, do that um and then and then I'll keep I'll do that a couple more times till they come pretty good. And then I'll I'll reel them out to 15 foot or 20 foot and then 30 foot until I get that dog come. And then I move to the to the vibrate um, and then I move to the simulation very low. You know, talking, I'll start out at one, see how the dog reacts. I just want them to know it's something's going on, move on to the uh, and and try to get them to come, and then move up. And I, I actually get it up to where it stings them a little bit because um even, you know, I work my way to that. But the reason I do that is because when they run off game and I and I get on to them a little bit harder, I don't want it to freak them out and send them through the country. I want them to know that no matter how high that stimulation gets, they got to come to me to get release. Mm-hmm. So that would be my starting point with a dog like that.
1: You said a key thing right there, the release. You know, when you train right. a dog on that line and you're stimulate giving them the stem, they you're trying to teach them that when they when they are doing what you want them to do, that they can be released from the pressure. You know, so right. you're teaching them to give to that pressure. Um and and the reason I wanted you to answer that question is because um the first time I hunted with you, you know, we're standing there right. in the dark. And you're calling each dog to the dog box. And I describe it to people as Shorty would invite his dogs to the kennel or to the dog box door, bring them out one at a time. There wasn't any fighting. There wasn't any, you know, it wasn't a circus or a rodeo at the tailgate trying to collar dogs. Each dog came out one at a time. And then as they, they did their thing, then they were all recalled one at a time. You'd put a couple in there, they'd drink water, the rest of them would be standing there waiting, and they would get into the dog box in order and no rodeo, no screaming, no, right. you know, no running them down, uh, none yeah. of that stuff. So
0: yeah. And a lot of that to me and and you know with your background, a lot of it's just just reputation. Do it the same every time. Like and that dog will learn exactly what the program is if you do it the same every time. And if you're changing things up all the time, they're confused or whatever. And that, that's just do it repetitiously. And those dogs are like, okay, I, I got it. I know what's going on. I know I'm going to get out. Nothing to worry about here. So.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Larry Anderson, he, he would go up to the kennel and and open all the kennel doors and I'd be down at the truck and open the the dog box door And we put the, and they were all orderly, you know, they knew Mm -hmm. that drill, they knew that they, they didn't have freedom. And this was without any collars on them at all, right. And they would, they would cover probably 50, 60 yards. You might get one over here, sniffing a bush or whatever before they Mm -hmm. got to the truck, but they all ended up at that tailgate waiting to get in that dog box. And it's, it's because he did it the same way every time. You know, it wasn't one drill today and another drill and let's change it up next week. It does it the same way. So I think you're, you're right. Consistency in dog training and repetition is, is really important.
0: Yeah. And, and I want to jump back to, to the training on the long line. Um, I know I, well, I don't really know, but I've heard that, uh, some of the coon hunters will have, um, I've heard it, I believe, on, on your podcast here that that tone means come and vibrate means get out of here or something like that. So if you're doing that, um, you're going to have to adjust that training accordingly um, because, obviously, if you do it like I do, it's going to work in reverse of what you would want. So keep right. that in mind.
1: Work on one thing at a time. Don't right. try to do multiple things in one, at one time. Right. Uh, if you're trying to teach a, a recall then whatever that recall is going to be work on it until it's mastered and then add the next layer to, to your house. You know, as far as the socialization goes for me, um, you know, there's no replacement for just spending time with the dog and reassuring that dog, especially one that could be 18 months old or two years old. You want them to know that you are the, you're their world you provide their food, you provide their water, you provide their, their affirmation and, and confirming that they're doing the right things. You're providing correction. But, but I just like to take those dogs and spend as much time as I can with them. um, And, and a lot of times, like on the, on the recall part, when I'm teaching a dog to come, if I see a dog that's coming to me already, then I'll go ahead and give them the command while they're coming. And as soon as they get there, right. Give them give them that high value reward. And I use, you know, I'll usually use kibble or, you know, dog food or uh peanut butter dog biscuits broken up into small pieces and, and stuff like that. So some of it is just they're already wanting to do that. Yep. So you're just capitalizing on it and and showing them or teaching them that coming to you is a good thing and being right. with you is a good thing. I've seen some that were wild and crazy. You know, you couldn't get your hands on them. And if, if you're going to come home, if you, if you go to pick up this dog and he won't let you get your hands on him in the kennel, the last thing you want to do is bring him home and let him run around and get to know the place. You're not going to mm-hmm. see that dog again, you know? Right. Right. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's one of those things. And Heath's talked about it too. Um, most hounds are, are food driven. -hmm. And so, food can be a very high value reward, and we're not we're not saying starve the dog, but the dog needs to realize that uh, uh, if if he's not going to come to you, then he's not going to be fed. Right. And I spend a lot of time hand feeding new dogs, Mm -hmm. feeding them right. Their whole ration comes right out of my hand every day for for a couple weeks, and still I see that change of behavior that that they are going to. Um, be part of the program here.
0: Right. <clears throat> yeah. They got to, got to realize who, who the master is, who they need to come to, to, to get what they want. Otherwise, like you said, you could turn them loose in the woods and never see them again.
3: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for
1: sure. Well, Josh, thanks for submitting that question. And uh, we appreciate you, you tuning in and, and uh, being part of the Houndsman XP podcast community um let's see here let's w- have you looked through these questions at all did i, I them to you what do you, what do you yes, want to, what do you want to tackle next
0: um there was one oh this is the one i liked is uh reed perkins um how many of all how many of y'all believe that the color of the pad has something to do with the with how tough the dog's foot is Um, I've heard it mentioned several times on the podcast, dark feet are tougher. Uh, When I brought this up to my fiance, she mentioned this has been a concern in horses for a long time and sheer force test on hooves found no difference in strength between light and dark pigmented hooves. Uh, Anecdotally, my dog with the hardest feet has pink all over his pads and some white nails. So, yeah, I thought this was a great question, and partially for that reason, because growing up in the horse world, um, yeah, it's been thought that for a long time, and it has been proven wrong. Um, I can tell you that the toughest color of pads on a dog is well-worn. (laughs) <laughs> a dog that's getting out and getting hunted every day is always going to be tougher than a dog's pads that are staying in the kennel. And if you want tough pads. Is. That's right. Well-worn pads are always tougher. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the key. Um, yeah. So I've, I've paid attention to that because I'm trying to, you know, got my own line of hounds and I want everything to be as perfect as I can. And, and, you know, when you get, one thing dialed in, then I feel like you can go move on to the other thing. And and I've paid close attention to that to to see if I needed to do anything in my breeding program to try to get darker feet or whatever. And and I'm right there with Reed. Some of the toughest footed dogs I've had have been white-footed, and that's why I firmly believe that well-worn pads are the best color.
1: It's almost like the old thing, you know, uh, it always looks at riff of a dog's mouth. They got a black riff in their mouth and then right. they'll have a good nose and, and things like that. And, and I think some of it, uh, I think some of it was just misread and then it got mm-hmm. passed down, you know, right. somebody had yeah. a dog and they looked in their mouth and it's like, well, this dog's got a dark mouth and he's my best dog. And this dog's got a pink mouth and he's not very good. And he said right. that and it just grew a lot. It became came like uh urban legends amongst townsmen
0: exactly exactly yeah and i couldn't agree more
1: yeah yeah it's uh the whole the whole pad thing and hoof thing and horses you know when did you change your mind on it because like you take the mustang horse and they've traditionally got dark black hooves or feet are harder than coffin nails and
0: right right um i've had some I've had some buddies that that always run their horses barefoot, and um, cowboys, real cowboys, you know, mm-hmm. um, that are out there doing it every day, and their horses, uh, the horses that they've had, that they had white feet, have been just as tough as as the other ones. And and I've actually asked them about that specifically, and they 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 said the same thing. And so that's when I kind of thought, well, maybe this is just BS,
1: right? Right. I wonder, I wonder if a lot of times we overlook some other confirmation problems that may mm -hmm. be contributing to that foot problem. And instead of doing the deep dive and, and really looking at the, you know, the angle of the foot and the way it hits the ground and things like that, you know, we just flip the dog's foot up and we say, oh, well, that's got a pink pad. So that's, that's what's going on.
0: Which, yeah. And, and that's especially true in horses. Um, you have to look at the, the whole conformation of the horse, the leg, um, the angle of the fetlock. You can do things in trimming or shoeing a horse mm-hmm. to actually make them hit the ground differently, which then sends sends a sting up their foot. And so, yeah, it's conformation um, the way the dog, I think it's got to be the same in a dog, yeah. the, way the way their fetlock drops um, or doesn't, um, is it too straight or too sloped, all that all that has to do with how the dog foot hits the ground and leaves the ground. And it's going to have to do with the, the abuse that the pad takes.
1: Another thing that I've found that will affect, you know, dog being, being looking like it's, it's sore footed or maybe has soft feet is not maintaining uh, the correct toenail length because right. that nail grows then it changes the angle or that that the, the, the foot hits the ground because that that nail's sticking out there too long, and so it changes that angle enough where the dog can't use its foot effectively and efficiently.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I can tell you, being an athlete for 26 years, um, and we're we're always making hard stops and turns and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that when your toenails are a little bit too long and they're running into the front of that shoe your toes get sore yeah, and so it has to, has to be true with the dogs as well. So, yep. and that that goes back to two though. Uh, well-worn toenails is, is the toughest toenails, you know, right. that's you can trim them by keeping them hunted. I haven't trimmed a, a toenail on dog in quite a long time.
1: It's, it's hard to do it when you get back East here because our ground is so soft. Uh, gotcha. I, I actually have to trim toenails even, even when I'm hunting hard, i've gotta right. I've gotta trim those toenails because I mean they're just sitting rock here it's it's just this time of year it's just real soft, a little bit of rain turns it into mud, and that would make uh, sense, yep, yep, yeah. so I do stay on top of them just so they don't get away from me but but check the confirmation, check toenail length, and uh the rest of it's a wife's tail there you go, all right, all right. Well, we're going to take I want let's let's look and see here. I've got a couple that I want to really some of these are great. Um Let's see here. I'm trying to go through these on my phone. All right, this is this is a good one. And uh Seth Hall's going to help me help me uh answer this question because he thinks he's he he's got it figured out and I'm sure it's going to involve um, one of his dogs, but uh, this is a question. Scott Allen, wildlife photographer extraordinaire from Liverpool, England. I'm glad you typed this out, Scott, because if you'd have called me and asked me the question, I wouldn't have been able to understand you. I wish you people over in England would learn to speak English, Um, but uh, (laughs) hey, this is the question. You find yourself in a survival situation with no conceivable end date. You can have one dog with you that has to hunt, find and kill game to help you both survive. What breed cross are you, are you taking? So I'm going to, we're going to cut away from here. And, uh, me and Seth are going to, I'm sure this will be a spirited debate, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, yeah. So here's, here's what Seth, Seth and I, uh, Seth Hall and I had to say about this. All right, Seth. Got you back in here for round two on this AMA because you, you commented on this, this particular question. um, And there was a lot of great questions. (laughs) Oh yeah. You talked about how you've wandered around aimlessly in the desert for hours thinking about this very thing. So I thought, well, if you've put a lot of thought into this, then, then you and I need to discuss it. Scott (laughs) Allen from Liverpool, England. He says you find yourself in a survival situation with no conceivable end date. You can have one dog with you that has to hunt, find and kill game to help you both survive. What breed cross are you taking? That's a great question, man. That's such a good question. There's there's a lot of depth to that. Not only does the dog have to find and kill game it's got to do it for both of you so you can both stay alive yeah all right there you go there's a question let you have the floor first
3: me oh yeah go ahead hot seat all right so i'm going to answer this question from my perspective the southern deserts right because yeah that's where i'm wandering around as i'm thinking about the first thing i'm going to say is this question gets way harder if you can only have one dog Right, 'cause I've always thought about it if you could have like one type of dog or even just a pack a pack, what would you get like, make your pack? But if you can have only one dog, I need something that can tolerate the climate here, cold, cold winters well below freezing in the winter time, brutal summers, well well above a hundred degrees from June to August every day, uh-huh. and I need something that can <clears throat> find game, catch game, dispatch game. Um, there's really no question for my area of the world, even cause, and I need a dog that can tolerate uh coppice dune wastelands, which are like these towering sand dunes full covered in mesquites, rocky creosote cra- gravel Hills, desert basins, shrub invaded grasslands. And so, um, the, the, the obvious question, there's only one breed that can really do all these things in my climate. And I think it's pretty obvious. It's the English bulldog. <laughs> I'm just kidding. What? No, no. <laughs> I'm kidding obviously for for me it's the saluki i mean oh i knew that's where you were going now now i want to say look into the comment section of that thread and even diehard hound hunters were like you're gonna have to have some kind of sighthound right because that's look, think about it this way
1: yeah have you ever seen Sin- i am have you ever seen i am legend with yeah Will smith the, yeah the the german the, shepherd the, right the, no but the zombie dogs were oh, greyhounds yeah. <laughs> So there are the, <laughs> at the apocalypse, they've already been taken by the zombies. You exactly. have do not have access to the
3: hot blood long long dogs. They've Those already been taken away clinso. by the zombies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. Off the exactly. table, dude. Yeah. So if I can only have one dog, though, that's that's really tough. Because like a Saluki isn't that useful. I don't really think a dog of any kind is useful at all for where I live. If I have mm-hmm. to have a single dog. Honestly, maybe I'll just have some kind of just general purpose furry mutt. Just I mean, think top- about how think about how many cal calories you are going to burn in a survival
1: situation, just walking the two miles to go to
3: your greyhounds that aren't going to bring that shit back to you anyway. They're going to well, stand there and the eat thing. it. Here, here's the deal, and this is the truth. We're going to get we're going to go into the drill into it. Okay, so if I can pick only one dog, honestly, where I live, it's not that useful. They're really not. Like, yeah, it's just too game is too scarce. Mm-hmm. The animals I need to bring down are way too tough for one dog to handle. And uh, water is just I mean, we're going to be living by a spring. We're walking tons of distance. A dog. It's just not going to work out well. Let's pretend let's modify this question slightly for if you can have a pack of a single breed or a single type. Then no, it's no, no question. No. Then, OK, you yeah. can
1: modify it all the way till you are you know, you're back out of your survival situation. OK,
3: this well, is then- one dog. Well, then I'll still take, I'll take a, uh, probably a Saluki hybridized with a big powerful coyote dog then. So okay. like half Saluki, half stag probably. And the reason yeah. I choose that is because I'm not hair hunting for hares are totally just because they're the best running animal in the world. I'm not chasing them for food. That's so stupid. I'm not spending 2000 calories to catch a five pound animal. I'm going to turn my sights almost <laughs> exclusively on, on deer, oryx and javelina, right? Those are like, you're going to be, and it's not going to be a two mile race, dude. Until you see a sidehound run, my Salukis could catch a deer. Oh, we know, we know, we know, we know, yeah. we know. We've we've so, heard so it all. You you walk with the dog on slip or loose, so you don't want him just chasing rabbits and stuff. So you'd have them on slip. You're walking through the deserts. You're just, you're looking for deer. Um, you're sitting up on high high desert mountains looking for deer down in the lower canyons. You put the stock on them downwind. You jump them and you send that lurcher to them, or in this case, it'd be a long dog. You send that Saluki cow dog hybrid. Coyote dogs have tons of power, tons of grit. They're fearless. They're going to latch onto that deer. And you better put on your track shoes, son. You better start running up to help dispatch that deer for that dog. But Exactly. Uh, Saluki, More a calorie Saluki. burn. A predator takes down game <clears throat> that it can handle with the least
1: amount of risk to itself. Well, you're so not going to turn them you Here's my answer, okay? How prevalent are rodents in the desert?
3: Extremely, but they're not. No, no no no, no, no,
1: no, no. I, I'll let you have your time. I'm taking my Yog terrier, baby. He's going to hunt within 20 feet of me. He's going to catch every rat, anything that he little dudes catching birds out here in the yard now. And, and not only that, but if it goes in water, he's going to bring it back to me. You know, he's going to retrieve that game to hand. It doesn't take anything to feed him. I mean, he's, he's 15 pounds. So his food intake is much lower and he's got the scenting ability. He's got the sight thing going on. He's got the versatility
3: going on. Mm. Me and T- me and Tuff are living large in the survival. It's a great situation. idea. I mean, he's also a yep. sentinel, right? Because I mean, here's the thing, the Hornada Mogion people that lived out there when the desert when it was still grassland transitioning into what now is the Hornada de Muerto. They did almost their main protein source was small game rodents and rabbits. Right. Yeah. But they had no dogs. They did all by trapping. So Uh I agree with you fully that your, your mind is on the right side, that rodents would be my primary food source, both for new, for water if there's not available. But the thing is I would set traps like crazy. tons of Deadfalls. And then I would focus on using my dog for medium sized game, like Mm -hmm. deer. And so you're definitely I agree. The small dog is definitely especially for a resource poor area like the desert. I mean, let's be honest statistically speaking, I'm going to be a skeleton out there in like five months. It's called the trail. I need to go there for a while.
1: I need to go for a while. Yeah. It's some weight. Me and tough need to go on the long walk out in the desert and just live off of, of sagebrush and greasewood and, and small rodents. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, You'll get your, uh,
3: your, your rodent, uh, was a shish kebabs. You get your kangaroo rat shish kebabs on. You'd be amazed how easy to catch they are. I mean oh, you yeah. guys could really pile them up. It's gonna be a very expensive Think about the calori- no how Yeah, how so? yeah. Well, they live expensive. deep in burrows. And so I mean your dog's gonna have to dig like crazy to find Oh,
1: that's an interesting thing. Yeah, yeah they're they're not on the
3: surface in the daytime ever, 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 ever. Well, so,
1: I wouldn't I wouldn't if I was in a survival situation, I wouldn't be moving during the day anyway. Well, yeah. I exactly. never understood I never understood those movies where you know, you see the cowboy and it's like dragging across the salt flat yeah. in the heat of the day. I'm like, you idiot, yeah. you know, build yourself a shelter during the middle of the day, move at night, conserve your energy, conserve yeah. your water. You know, Come on. I guess yeah. it's too hard to film Westerns
3: at night on the grand salt flats or something, but yeah, it, they're hard to catch. That's the thing. And, and so yeah, yeah tough's going to tough's going to look like a rake pretty soon trying to dig those little dudes up. Their yeah. burrows are everywhere, though. I mean, you don't have to go far. You walk in a hundred yard radius from your camp and you could dig up 20 of them. But it's going to be how deep between uh, between three and 10 feet. Woo, so, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. of yeah, calorie yeah, yeah. And one, they have tons of escape tunnels rat. and stuff everywhere. So it's tough. dude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: yeah. But Cracks. in the in the <laughs> zom- yeah, in the zombie apocalypse, zombie apocalypse not in the desert, you know, walking the streets in New York, like Will Smith was, I am legend, uh, me and tough, me and
3: tough. are going to haul it in. I honestly think that's a great idea. It's just the small size makes them so much more economical. And we're going to fight off the, the be zombie monster. greyhounds.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're back. And uh, Shorty, you heard the question. And, uh, you weren't privy to Seth's answer, so you can be totally unbiased about this, but how would you answer that question?
0: Ooh, one dog that had to to hunt, hunt, uh, to help you survive. Yep. Well, I would have to, I would have to know more information on what kind of game we were, was in the landscape. Um, for out here, um,
1: you've gone through the zombie apocalypse and you're on the outskirts of LA and and now you got to survive.
0: I think I would stick with the same dogs I have. I think, uh, the running dogs for me. Um, but it's the dog that I know, you know, more about, um, I think another good type of dog would be like your, your cur dogs. Yeah. Um, you know, if you think about it, the, the um original mountain curves, that's their, that was their sole purpose. needs to plots. do everything. So yeah. Some well, anything that's going to catch trash. game, but anything but that's I, trashy. Well, Hey, and I think, I think all dogs are trashy. <laughs> it, I really do. Yep. It's, it's, um, I tell people they say, "How do you train them to 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 chase lions and and bobcats?" And I say, "I don't teach them how to chase them. I teach them what not to chase." And and I think until you teach a dog what not to chase, they're naturally born to catch game. Yeah, you know. Um, so if you just threw them out there in the woods and 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 went, I believe all dogs would run anything.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, that was an interesting question from scott and i always give scott a hard time about his accent it's a combination of that thick liverpool accident uh accent and my lack of ability to hear i yeah, mean i um, i when, when whenever i talk to scott I, when we have him on the podcast or whatever i have to watch like four or five episodes of peaky blinders to get my ears <laughs> trained up to where i'm gonna be able to understand him so Yeah, he's probably thinking, who is this hillbilly, and and why is he, you know? Right. Yeah, like you're easy to understand, Chris Powell. Oh, man. All right, I've got one here, and um, I'm not sure if I want to do it. Yeah, I'll put it out there. This should be short and easy. Tracy Woodruff writes, asks, papers or no papers? I have my own opinion. I'm not sure why he's asking if he's got his own opinion. I guess he wants to hear our opinion. Papers right. or no papers? I have my own opinion. Yes, I know papers don't guarantee a dog to hunt and they can be possibly not legit. And I guess he's, you know, he's talking about the papers not being legit. How important are papers in your world, shorty?
0: Uh, not at all. Um that said, um not at all. As far as being a a kennel club set of papers. That mm-hmm. said, I have papers on all my dogs. I know their breeding. I know their background. I know their genetics. I think, at least knowing that and keeping your own records is very very important because, um, it's it's dawned on me in the last thirty years how important genetics are, and and. For those of you that that know my background or don't, um, coming from uh, the bull riding world, I think there's a parallel between dogs and and bucking animals, horses or bulls. Um, I can't. I want to hear this. In the fact that once that animal, once that bucking animal leaves the chute, it's just like that animal leaving your truck or leaving that chain. That you you no longer have control of them. And so, it's in the genetics, the desire to catch game, where it's Mm -hmm. in the genetics for those animals to want to buck. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you're riding a horse, I can make that horse do what I want it to do because I have physical control of that horse. Mm -hmm. But once you release them out of a buck and shoot, that horse is either going to buck or it's not. That bull's going to buck or it's not. And that dog's going to catch game or it's not. So, in my opinion, genetics is the hugest component in a good animal and especially in a good dog. I can only do so much as a trainer um, to a hound to make it want to catch game. So yes, I I know my genetics, but I don't, none of them are registered with any kind of kennel club.
1: You said hugest. Is that, is that huger than, is that huger than exposure?
0: I should have probably said hugest.
1: (laughs) Uh, yeah. So it depends on what you're doing with the dog for sure. Um, you know, if you're going to compete with the dog and right. there wasn't any, there wasn't anything that, uh uh, just cover it from all angles. Obviously, if you're going to enter competitions, then, uh, right. most, most competitions it's going to be require registration. The benefits to papers, uh, from a regis- registry is, uh, like a uh, super stakes hound has to be DNA profiled. So now we've got a DNA profile on. So that that eliminates some of the illegitim- uh, illegitimate papers or the fake papers. When I first started, ma'am, uh, you could find papers anytime you wanted. You know, you could find papers for a red tick, a blue tick, an English red tick, an English blue tick. You know, you could register a walker on English papers or an English dog on walker papers a lot of times. You know, it's harder to do with red bone and things like that. But even then, you know, you, uh, there were a lot of old black mouth cur type red bone dogs that had enough ear that they mm-hmm. could have some papers put on them. Uh, over the years with the performance sire program and things, uh, those things have become more and more rare. I'm not going to say it's non-existent out there, but but it's more rare. The thing that I do like about it is... I just got a five-generation pedigree from uh, UKC, and I can go back and see what dogs have been recorded for five generations back. And if since I did not breed the dog that the papers came on five generations back, it lets me know maybe where some of those genetic markers are back there five generations back and look and see, you know, do some research on strengths and weaknesses in those individual dogs. And because those will come out even three, Mm -hmm. five generations down the road, they'll come out. And uh, if you're not, if you're not intimately familiar and haven't hunted every dog in that pedigree, then you're going to be at a loss if you decide that you're going to reproduce a litter or, or hounds from that dog that you're looking at. So uh, that's one of the values to having papers. They don't make a dog. They don't make them. There's probably been more hybrid dogs that, that uh, weren't given the proper chance that never made anything Mm -hmm. than, than, then there should be, but it, it absolutely has no bearing on the uh, performance level of a hound. That, that comes from you, the hunter, you, the, the exposure, you know, if you want, mm-hmm. if you want a good dog, you gotta, you gotta have worn pads and worn toenails, right?
0: That's right. It's the best color.
1: Yeah. 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 Well, that's a good one. That's a good one. All right. Let's, uh, let's, you got, you got one you want, you want to tackle there, Shorty?
0: Caleb Roach. That's yeah. one I liked. Um, I've got two questions. What's your strangest thing or place you've seen a dog treed on with the meat and what is more desirable, a dog that runs to catch or a dog that hunts to please the handler?
1: That's the one I wanted you to weigh in on for sure.
0: Yeah. So, um, for us, you know, most of the time, uh, they, uh, you're, uh, you're either bait up on the rocks or you're, or you're in a tree. Um, when it gets wild is when there's mine shafts. Um, and I actually, um, I don't hunt where there's a lot of mine shafts. There's guys that have way, way more experience than I do, but we did, uh, had a client one time and, and caught a lion on, uh, on the ground. I could hear the dogs bayed. And so I hike in and I'd made a deal. This guy's a friend of mine and and his wife. Made it very clear right off the get go. She said, I do not want to see an animal die. I said, that's no problem, but promise me this. If I can get you within 200 yards of the tree, you'll come in and see it. And then I'll turn around and I'll walk you back to the truck and I'll go back to the tree and your husband will take care of business. And so she agreed. Sure enough, they're bait on the ground. I drive in there 180 yards. Perfect. You're going.
1: I'd have left her ass at home.
0: So, no, <laughs> no you wouldn't have. <laughs> no, you wouldn't have. You ever heard of Sancho? <laughs> and she's a pretty good looking woman. <clears throat> but, uh, so we go, I walk in there for Well, hey,
1: wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Haven't you ever seen, I don't care how good looking they are, somebody is tired of their
0: crap. Well, I'm sure, but he wasn't at the time. <laughs> so, in fact, they had just gotten married, but... But uh, anyhow, so I walk in there and they've got this lion bait up right on top of a mine shaft that goes straight down. And Mm so I hustle back out because I told them just follow my trail. Well, my trail was going to take them right in the middle of everything. So I said, hey, we got to go around this other direction and get a little bit of distance. I didn't want them, you know, right up next to it. And so uh, I got them up there where they're about uh ah, twenty, thirty yards from it. And they were taking pictures and that and and I look around and and it was a split race. So I had some dogs that had another one treed. And um and I look around and I'm missing one of my dogs. And I thought, damn, where'd Tiffy? Surely Tiffy didn't leave a lion bait on the ground right to go to those dogs treed 800 yards from here. Well then all of a sudden I heard a bark and it was coming from that hole. And I said, oh no, we got a problem here. Mm-hmm. So I got over there and I went to catching dogs and I got them tied back. And she says, what's, what's the problem? I said, "Tippy Tippy got knocked off into that mine shaft and her, her attitude changed. She said, kill that lion. Now kill that. I said, no, yeah. we can't. And she's, she was wanting to save the dog. She's like, right. kill us. No, if we, if we do, then the lion's going to go in the mine shaft. And if it's not dead, then we got a real problem. Right. And so, I got the dogs tied back. <clears throat> we waited a while Lion left. Um, I ended up having to climb up on a mountain and call a friend of mine. And I said, Hey, Tippy's in a mine chef. We need to get some climbers out here. This is way too big a deal for us. And so, so what do you want me to do? I said, Facebook, man, just get on Facebook. Tell it. Sure enough, there's a kid that's a, his dad's a rock climber. Rock climbing instructor, and so they come out turns out the kid was a bull rider, so it was actually a pretty cool deal, yeah, um, so anyways, we got her out of there, so that was the weirdest place I've had one um to answer that question um the, what about well, you? The, you had any weird ones
1: I mean high line poles, you know, like stu- infrastructure right. on on uh you know high tensile power lines and stuff like that. We were hunting around a cornfield one night and. And, uh, dogs were really pouring on the steam on this coon race and, and, uh, the only place for that coon to climb in that whole field was, was, uh, uh, I've done it twice, actually i have done this twice and, and had coons climb up a telephone pole or what we call a utility pole and, uh, sitting on the cross arm up there. And that's the only place they, they had to get out of, you know, they couldn't right. make it to the edge. So I'm headed yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but nothing like nothing like mountain lions on the edges of mine shafts. But no. uh
0: and that dog fell she fell forty five foot straight down into there. There luckily there was a little bit of water in there, not much. I think it just just enough to slow her fall down and but she could stand in it, you know, it's probably up to her yeah. elbows. Um but yeah, and then I hunted her I think two days later she was back to hunting.
1: Yeah. So, yeah.
0: but um I,
1: I know I know one. I got I got one. So we were running a coom one night and it came out of a cornfield and I'm looking at my Garmin and, um, we drive around. And I'm like, dang, those dogs ought to be right here. And I, I drive by this house trailer on the edge of this, this wooded area. It's like, man, this is showing those dogs right there at that trailer. And I'm thinking, Holy crap, they're, they're showing treed. And then of course I'm starting to have these, these feelings. Like I didn't know the person lived in the, in the trailer and stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, I started having those feelings. Like I didn't hear any gunshots, but are my dogs alive type thing. And, right. uh, the guy was out on the porch and I could see him from the road and he wasn't holding, he wasn't holding a gun. So we swung in there and as an older guy, he's like, those, do- those damn coons have been running up under this trailer. I hope those dogs kill every one of them. You Perfect. know, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> they had torn the underpinning back and we're underneath and they were just wreaking havoc underneath this trailer. And I was just like, Oh my gosh. And he's like, don't worry about it. I'll fix it later. And perfect. uh, Yeah. So that's cool, man. As soon as we got those dogs out there, I don't know what they killed, what they tore up, but I grabbed them threw them in the truck said, thanks a lot, buddy. Talk to you later.
0: Yeah. Yeah. See ya. I had another, (laughs) I'll, I'll share it on, on the Facebook page. I had another one ran a Bobcat for, I don't know, probably 20 minutes and then ended up baying it. And the, the, there's a hunting camp there and there's a little uh, shed in the back of the hunt camp next to the brush line and uh, the dog bathed that cat up in that shed. Yeah. So yeah. I'll, uh, I'll share that one on the Facebook page. Yeah. So, cool. um, second part of the question, um, what's more desirable a dog that runs to catch or a dog that hunts to please the handler. Um, For me, I want a dog that runs the catch. You bet. I I don't care if that dog, if I ever see that dog, when I turn it loose until it's time to go home. I just, uh, for us, some of the country we hunt is big, rugged, tough country. And if I got a dog underneath my feet all day, they're not going to find a track to to run. And, And there's just not many, um, tracks. If you got, if, people want to do something cool, uh, or not cool, but see the country, the country we hunt a lot of times, uh, just Google, um, Eastern slope of Sierra Nevada mountains. And, uh, you'll see some of the country we hunt in and, and you'll understand why I want got to have a dog that they go somewhere and goes and look for a track. And I want them to like me. I want them to be part of the team, but when it's hunting time, I don't want them to, I just want them to go as far and, and, uh, until they find a track and when it's time to come back, I'll push that tone button and tell them to come here.
1: Yeah. I've hunted some real weirdos in the, in my career, you know, ones that didn't div, give two shakes about what I was doing or where I was at, as long as they didn't care. It's like, right. Uh, that's not the dog I would take on the survival deal, you know, because they're not, they don't care what's going on with you unless they want right. to come back and eat you after you die or something. But, right, uh, right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but they were good dogs and they were, but they were just different. They were, uh, they were very focused on what they wanted to do and, and stuff like that. And it's, it's a deal where, uh, it, it wasn't, they didn't come back to me because they were my friend. They were coming back to me because they knew there were consequences if they didn't. And right, I, right. I don't typically like hunting dogs like that. Uh, but right. Some of them, some of them have been phenomenal.
0: phenomenal. And that's something we should
1: dog, dog to run to catch.
0: That's something that we should we should clarify for Caleb is. You got to remember, I'm we do this. It's a business for me. It's it's how I make my living. Mm-hmm. Um, my job's to catch game, no matter what, no matter where. Um, if you're a pleasure hunter, you don't you don't want the kind of dogs that. That I hunt. Um, if you if you're a pleasure hunter, Caleb, I would rather have. Or if I was a pleasure hunter, I would rather have a dog that hunted to please the handler. Um, so it depends what your goals are. Are you a competition hunter that's out there trying to win a big check, yep. or um, are you trying to do it for as a as a guide or outfitter, or are you just doing it as as a pleasurable hobby? Um, so if it was if it wasn't a way i was making a check i would be i would prefer to to hunt a dog that uh was a little more pleasurable to hunt and, and wanted to wanted to please me
4: mhm
1: yeah and i i think i've noticed too this in people there's some people that are just wired different you know some people go out mm-hmm. and hunt to have fun and then there's some right. people that go out there because they're obsessed with it and right um uh, the people that are obsessed with it are wired a lot different they don't mm-hmm. care what you're doing or where you're at they're not making excuses they're out there hunting and they're out there getting with it so it kind of brings it back to a, an example there but some of the best competition handlers uh are driven like that and your best yep. outfitters and your professional houndsmen you know i remember a, a evan workman when i totaled my truck in west virginia and uh uh he pulls up after the wreckage, the dust had settled, hadn't even settled yet. Pulls up and he looks out his Toyota window. We we're running a bear. He pulls up, he goes, Is everybody all right? And uh we're like, Yeah, everybody's fine. And he's like, Well, we can take care of that truck later. We got a bear to catch, and just spun out right. and left us standing there, you know. even yep. with the broken trucks. Right. So that's a different level. Yep.
0: Oh, yeah. Yep. It wasn't there exactly. to please
1: me that day, I guarantee it.
0: No, no, hundred percent.
1: Yeah. 100%. yeah. <laughs> I so I think uh, Caleb, it just it comes back to uh, uh, what your what your goal is for the hound. You know your dog, whether it's a terrier or dog or whatever, but even bird dogs, I don't care what it is, Labradors, those high level Labradors, uh, all of them. I mean, they are game crazy and they just tolerate you in their life because they know you're an ends to a mean for them or a means to an end. Got that one screwed up. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, Hey, let's, I've got it. I've got one and it came from my old buddy, John Bolin. You guys have heard it from John Boland on, uh, uh, this podcast. It was, I shook hands with the, uh, uh, HSUS. It was a great episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, John talked about the animal rights movement and the stuff that goes on there. But, so, John was looking at my picture here, and he says, are you communicating tele- telepathically with your dog in this photo? So, I thought, who better to help me answer this question than, than, um, hang on a second. I got the guys from, the guys from the Hound's Tooth podcast, Daniel Falkner, is going to weigh in here. If you guys haven't listened to the houndstooth podcast, then, uh, uh, go over and check it out. They talk about all kinds of paranormal stuff when people are out coon hunting and hog hunting and different things and Bigfoot and, and all kinds of stuff over there. So I, I reached out to Daniel. I thought this is right in this guy up this guy's alley. (laughs) So Daniel and I sat down and had this conversation about telepathic communication between our hounds. And us, but the question I wanted to ask you guys, we've got Daniel and Dustin and Ryan from coon hunting confidentials. Like I said, when I saw this question, I thought I got to reach out the guys over at Houndstooth tooth and let them answer this question and we'll talk about it. So John Boland asked this question. He says, and if you guys saw this posters, I always put up a picture of my Yog terrier sitting on the console next to me in the truck. And I always get some kind of comment like this, but this is the question. Are you communicating telepathically with your dog in this photo? Mm -hmm. Is it, is it possible or in your experience, have you ever communicated with your dog, like wonder twin style through (laughs) mental telepathy?
2: Oh. I, well, personally, I have not, and we we've we've had this discussion. We we just had a lengthy discussion on this topic a little while ago. We've uh, heard of people being on psychedelics and communicating <laughs> telepathically, <laughs> like like. And I seen a podcast I mean, about ancient cultures giving their dogs mushrooms. Yeah. Um. Here's my take on it. I do. I think it's in the realm of possibility um i think because here's what you know what nikola tesla said if you really want to understand the universe thinking energy vibration and free energy frequency and vibration so i have and and have heard stories of people like i know a guy i worked with him talking about him and his, his buddy doing lsd yeah. and both of them he said he was laying in bed and he was looking up at the ceiling and he said he saw like a thousand glowing neon drumsticks Floating across the ceiling, and his buddy was laying in the floor, and said, "Man, you ain't gonna believe this." He said, "But I see like a thousand neon glowing drumsticks floating across your ceiling." And uh, we even interviewed Ashley Moss back last year at the Grand American. She might not want that out there, like. Well, it. it's it's on our podcast, so. They, they they go back, they're going to hear it anyway. Oh, well. Well, rock on. It's just talking about, yeah, they did talking about some, they was doing mushrooms and her and another girl at the same time both saw Smurf come out of the wall. They saw Papa Smurf come out of the wall. So, <laughs> and, but, but here's my question <laughs> What makes two people see the same exact thing? And I know a guy, I, but I know a guy who owned LSD talked to his buddy. I don't know if it was LSD. It was on a psychedelic. Uh-huh. They, they spoke to each other for three days after that and all, and this is like locally and people could tell that they were talking to each other and it freaked them out really. But that was like three days afterwards we were still talking to each other with our minds and not moving our mouths. So I would, I, I don't 10 I, to have no, minutes, Bo, 10 I have no I have Let's no go. clinical studies to back this up, but I'm pretty sure it'd be easy to do. But I think if both dog and person were both on the right amount of some type of psychedelic like LSD or, or something of that nature. I, i'm not saying that maybe that their bri- brain wavelengths might could match up and he speaks something but on the on the surface level um I highly doubt it
0: yeah I, I, can
2: that, I can tell you that
1: I can tell that me and tough neither one of us were on psychedelics it's time that photo was taken so the simple answer to qu- john's question is no I'm not I'm not uh, communicating telepathically with tough in that photo but <laughs> but um my to answer your question daniel you know how does it happen i'm wondering if if they're not talking and don't even realize they're talking and communicating and then it's like wow yeah You know, you know what i mean i don't know yeah. did you see smurf it. yeah i don't know. Do you know i've never done psychedelics so i, I can't talk from uh I can't talk from there. I don't know.
2: (laughs) But what is it that a dog – oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. It's Dustin's turn to talk. I'm just saying I disagree with you. I don't think it's possible. Dustin says no. Daniel says it's possible. I believe the reason people think dogs are reading their mind is because they are so in tune with our body languages, and they know what we want before we won't. But but Chris, he might know what is that dog tuning into? Are they reading your vibration and the frequency coming off your body? How do they know how are they reading that vibe coming off of you? Can they see an aura? Can they see your if your anger, can they see that energy coming off of you? Can they smell that energy coming off of you? He's like, what the hell are you how does that mental picture work?
1: Yeah. So all right. So Seth, Seth did a piece not too long ago about the way, about the way dogs see, I I highly recommend everybody go back and see, and and listen to that probably November, maybe of the all mixed up. He went into this whole in-depth thing and cited studies about how dogs eyes work. And, uh, since he's a sidehound guy, it was fitting for him to do that. But, uh, yeah, it, you know, dogs, dogs among each other communicate mostly non-verbally if you they they communicate in ways that we don't even pick up um you know when a dog walks in a room he's smelling pheromones he's smelling a lot of things that we'll never be able to comprehend but just the the look in the eye just a glance I mean there's so much that that we take for granted because we are verbal communicators and we can communicate I'm not so sure that we communicate better but it's it's familiar to us, whereas dogs communicate on a whole different level. Um, you know that's why that's why you see so many um, of these stories coming out about about bulldogs that are that are attacking people or t- attacking kids, because people mistake. Oh look at look at little Brummy over there. He just loves little so and so and the whole time Brummy's yawning or he's showing the whites of his eyes around his eyes. Uh, you know, he's, he's giving him that sideways glance where another dog would see that and be like, Hey, I'm not going over there. Cause Brummy's getting ready to rip my head off where we look at it and we're, we miss, we misinterpret the whole thing. And, and we do it all the time with our dogs, but I can, I can tell you, my dogs know the difference in, in my body language, you know, just, just the way it goes. But, Um, it's really an interesting thing when you think about how in tune dogs language and their reading of body language can be go ahead
2: Yeah. yeah
1: yeah but but the the mental telepathy thing i don't know you know i don't know what all they're what all they're feeling for sure you know uh but i'm (laughs) <laughs> i guess sometimes i look at my dog and i know and you can see if you're in tune with your dog you're like i know what you're thinking you know is that <laughs> mental telepathy
2: uh, i don't know that it's mental telepathy yeah if it's it like i probably come through to you but you're picking up what he's putting down kind yeah. of yeah yeah
1: that's reading your oh. dog that's reading your dog hey, haven't you ever seen that dog it's like you're you're Maybe you're out squirrel hunting with a dog, and a deer jumps up, and he's. You can read that. Like, don't you do it? I know what you're thinking. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah, yeah,
0: for sure.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Daniel said it earlier in the year with my dog. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, guys, yeah. man, I I wish you all the best on your podcast. I knew you guys would be a blast to have on to to discuss this. Uh, tell people where they can find you on social media and how they listen to your podcast.
2: On social media, just uh, search Howl's Tooth Podcasting Network and join the group. And they search that same thing on uh, all platforms. They can find us on there and yep. come laugh and hang out. We say we are like a bag of potato chips. You listen to one episode, you're going to be listening to another one and another one. Yeah. You know, anyway, we appreciate you having us on, man. Man, hey, yeah. it's my pleasure. Yep. Thanks for
1: helping That's me that. out. I need I needed some help on this when I knew where to go to find it.
2: Well, <laughs> because <better laughs> about got beat, so we don't know how much help we was. <laughs> oh yeah,
1: oh yeah. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Then you have a good we appreciate it. All right. So, Shorty, let's get your let's get your input on telepathic communication.
0: Well. I don't, I, you know, I, I do kind of, I mean, I guess it depends on what you define as telepathic communications, but I, I do think that, that a dog more than anything they're Yeah. They're reading your body language. You better, they're, you know what I mean? And so, and I've done it before and more screwed around with whoever was with me. Uh, you see a dog that wants to go a certain direction and you know, it wants to go a certain direction and it turns around and looks at you and I point that way and that dog will go that way, you know? And they right. think that's super cool, but I think it's b s the dog already wanted to go that way but <laughs> yeah. but no they do they to me they read their body language um you know and and like I know I know some people that have hunted uh the same dogs on uh cattle um on hogs and on wounded deer, and just by the way, and they did this on horseback, just by the way that you did things that dog knew. Whether you were hunting hogs or you were hunting right. uh, cattle, and yep. and and they, if you were if you were after hogs, they wouldn't mess with cattle. If you were after cattle, they wouldn't mess with hogs. And so, um, yeah, I I will. Uh, well, a lot of you guys, you know, that are that are driving the roads looking for tracks, and you stop and you get out and you look for a bear track, or you or you. You look for a lion track or a right. bobcat track. Those dogs know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. They know exactly what's going. On. And a lot of times, you hear them start to bark in the box. And it's and they may not smell that track, but they see you get out and they see you start to look and they see you start to focus on the ground and they know exactly what's going on. Yeah, so your,
1: your dog knows if you're having a good day, a bad day. That yep. you know it, they ninety percent of communication with dogs is nonverbal communication. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's body yep. language. I can walk around and I can walk from my back door come around the wood stove headed to the barn and if I've got if I've got my boots on you know with the chaps and stuff like that and they're rubbing together and I got my light on those dogs know it's time to go hunting and they act a lot yep. different than than when I'm going out to put wood in the stove you know yep. and it's it's just one of those deals that um if if they can communicate uh, through mental telepathy, they're a lot better at it than we are because we don't even realize what they're what they're doing. But you right. can, you know, you can. But dogs aren't that sophisticated either because you can talk to them in different tones of language and get the same results. You know, I've had dogs that that uh, a, a good example is last, last week when we were bear hunting over in Virginia. I had a young dog that was backtracking a bear track. And I toned him and brought him back in and, uh, the guys I was hunting with is Brad Luttrell from go wild. He was like, he's like, so what happens when the dog gets back here? Um, and I said, well, at the time, and I was saying all kinds of mean things, you know, hateful things about this dog for running back. To him. Right. I said, but when he gets back here, I've told him to come back. And it's going to be a party when he comes back here, because that's what he's responding to right now. So, you know, you can sit there and talk to a dog and say, you're the dumbest idiot I ever saw, you know, and just talk to them like that. And they're just wiggling all over.
0: So Yep. yep that's right.
1: Yep. Well, hey, I think we're going to wrap it up. Uh, and I'm just going to, I'm going to hit up Derek Torminan and uh, Seth to help me answer the last question shorty and and when we get when we get that one out then uh uh we'll just call it a wrap but uh this was a great question and i gotta find it all right uh you find yourself at a crossroads you must pick a direction at the end of each road you will have you will inevitably engage in hand-to-hand combat no access to weaponry one road has two big mean boar coons waiting for you. The other has a ticked off bob, Bobcat. What road are you taking? You're at a crossing the road, shorty. Let's get your weight. Let's get your opinion on this and we'll let Derek, Derek and Seth.
0: Wrap yeah. It up. Well, I I'm probably more comfortable with a Bobcat just cause that's, that's my wheelhouse. But that being said, I know how tough a coon is and, yeah. um, uh, I will tell you this. I've actually got video. I, if I can find it, it's in one of my old phones. I have video, uh, where, where I treat a Bobcat and a coon in the same tree. Yeah. Um, and it was pretty cool because, you know, say the trunk's going straight up. The, the Bobcat was on the left. And as I'm walking in the coons on the right, well I saw the coon first and I thought the dog screwed up. Then I saw the Bobcat. Well, Bobcat sees me. he, crosses over and ends up like shoulder to shoulder with this coon and they're both looking at me and, um, and they didn't know each other was there. And so then after a few minutes, they, one looks at the other the other looks at it and it, the battle is on.
1: And, uh, <laughs>
0: guess which one won? The one of them got kicked out of the tree. The coon the stayed there. Yeah. 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 yeah so I'm pretty sure, uh, pretty sure I probably wouldn't want to screw with the coons. Um, we
1: treat, we treat one oh. the other, we treat a coon that was, or a possum the other night. We, we treat a coon. This, it wasn't my dog on the tree. So I'll, I'll let the guy tell whatever story he wants. But, uh, uh, there was a possum and a coon in the tree. The possum was sitting on top of the coon's head. Okay. No Crazy. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. That had That's nothing to cool. do with this question, but it was still, it was still a funny story. So, all right. Yeah. Well, Shorty, I appreciate it. And we'll, we'll wrap it up. We'll leave the final word with uh Derek and Seth.
0: Sounds good, buddy. Hey, good to talk to you again. Good to be on the podcast. You've been kicking butt. I've been enjoying listening to them while I'm out there in the woods. And uh for everybody else, keep them in the woods. All right. Stay in touch, man. Appreciate you, you coming on. Josh Josh Michaelis calls this the best
1: question of the year and – we're only what are we ten days into the year so so congratulations on that derek i've got I've got the creator of the question with us and Seth Hall are here to answer Derek's question of the year. I'm gonna read it and and then we're gonna discuss it and Derek, the reason I wanted you here by the way, um, keep pumping out those sick graphics that you're doing for us
3: throughout our yes, agenda. Sir. Man, yes, we sir. really,
1: we really appreciate it.
3: Couldn't agree more.
1: Yeah. All right. So here's here's the question of 2023 so far. So there's somebody's gonna have to top this one. According to Josh Michaelis, you find yourself at a crossroads. You must pick a direction. At the end of each road, you will inevitably engage in hand-to-hand combat. No access to weaponry. One road has two big, mean boar coons waiting for you. The other has a ticked-off bobcat. What road
3: <laughs> are you taking? <laughs> this is the best question I could agree with you, John. I even commented on this immediately oh, yeah. when I saw it. I am like, <laughs> oh. "This is
1: amazing." It's like Derek's got to get on here. He's put some thought into this, man. Or, did that didn't roll off of you, Derek. How'd you come up with a question like well- that?
4: I was I was trying to come up with something, you know, off the wall, funny, something I could think of. And then that just kind of popped into my head. I wanted some kind of funny hypothetical, you know, relevant to, to the houndsman life. And that's kind of what I came up with.
1: <laughs> yeah, you nailed that, dude. Just like the steak and shake graphic that you dropped like spontaneously.
3: Boom. <laughs> No, I disagree. Yeah. Superior life form was a better spontaneous drop. <coughs> no, 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 it wasn't. It was not. We'll get into that. We'll get into that in the
1: next segment of this podcast. Uh, all right, Derek, you, you wrote the question. What
4: are you picking? Well, I've thought about this a little bit. I and... figured, and <laughs> I think I would probably have to go down the road with the two coons and. Mm. The reason being, now I could be wrong because I've I've never gone after a bobcat, but from my understanding, there are some pretty quick and mean suckers. Like they could they could tear you to ribbons in a heartbeat. Now, coons, mm-hmm. you know, you might have a problem getting a hold of them, and if one of them gets on your head, then you're kind of done for. But if you could kick if you could kick one off, then you mm-hmm. might have a fighting chance. Whereas that bobcat, you might not even be able to get a hold of that sucker.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's kind of like you know Chad Reynolds talking about you know trying to kick a chihuahua.
0: It's it's hard to do. i
1: you know that's that's a that's a tall order to try to try to kick a raccoon off or or even the bobcat. So either way, it looks sounds like bad news. Bad news. Yeah. You're, you're you're taking the you're taking the road with the the two boarcoons. That's what you're saying.
4: I think that's the way I would go right mm. now. Yeah.
1: Mm. Okay. <laughs> a robust Seth. answer. <laughs> Seth, what do you,
3: what do you think? Wait, what say you, Seth? I spend a lot of time in the desert alone, wandering the wastes. And I thought about this question all day. So I have a I- multifaceted answer. I'm coming to the crossroads. I look down the road. I see the two Borkoons salivating, rabid, ready to fight. I look down the other road. I see the Bobcat. I decide, here's the thing. Three things come into my head. One, Multiple foes versus one foe. I'm going with the bobcat on that one. Then I think, hmm. I listen back to the Hounds of XP podcast. Josh Michaelis and Chris Powell talked about how if you get a bobcat in a in a catch pole, they can die very quickly. So yeah. I'm going straight for the throat as quickly as I can.
1: Oh, you're not only you're already pregame in <clears throat> the fight too.
3: I'm pregame in the fight because I know. Okay, first of all, I have booted a coon. It did nothing to it. It Mm -hmm. was just like, and like took off running. Right. Okay. Bobcat, possibly fragile three. I worked with a woman in a lab once and she had a pet Bobcat. She tried to take a fish away from it once and it shredded her arm in like a millisecond. She had to go to the hospital, get a ton of stitches, blah, 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 whatever. So I know I'm in no illusion that whatever road I go down is going to be a bloody mess. And I'm going to come out looking like ribbons, but I'm going with the Bobcat frail body. If he's going to attack me, Mm. I'm going to, I don't have to catch him. He's coming at me. I'm going to grab him. I'm going to strangle him out. I'm going to try to crush him. A big desert Bobcat only weighs about 28 pounds here. I'm 170. I feel like I can get the upper hand on him. I'm going to take a ton of damage, but I'm going to get him. I'm going to try to go for his face or throat. I'm going to try to... Yeah, get him and hopefully i can get my human catch <laughs> yeah. pole on you know what i'm saying 10, uh, the coons, i'm gonna get demolished by the coons what, what going you, into a fight with 10 switchblade knives yeah yeah I no no with the coons it's 20 <laughs> so well, it, they're, yeah
1: yeah they're tough man they're super
3: well tough. A, a bobcat's got 20 backlit back feet That's don't true back and feet. don't forget the teeth I, i'm yeah. in no illusions i'm gonna get yeah. annihilated possibly die from blood loss but what am I going to do to the coons? Am I going to get down on my hands and knees and start boxing them? Like they're going to run up me and start destroying me. There's two of them. Right. I don't know, man. I, I don't like uh, the odds against two. All right. <laughs> so
1: here's, I am going to defer to the legend, Mr. Jerry Clower, knock him out. John, knock him out. Mr. John Newbank was a legendary tree climber. He climbed many trees to knock out and to push out, push out coons out of trees with no problem at all. But the night that he climbed the tree, slipped those, slipped those feet out of those bro shoes and dug those toenails into that bark and boogity, boogity, boogity up the tree. He went, he was up there looking around and he came up, he was face to face with the souped up wildcat and John could not get that Bobcat out of the tree. They call them a lynx, but I'd say it was a bobcat. And, and John Newbank's famous words were, shoot up here amongst us. Someone's <laughs> got to have some relief. So I'm going with Mr. John Newbank, who has got the firsthand experience. He had no problem climbing a tree to face a raccoon or two raccoons. But when we came to the bobcat, he was crying for help from the ground. That's my answer. You think you're just
3: gonna like slam the coons, like (laughs) knock them out, John?
1: (laughs) Knock them out.